Well, good morning and welcome to Toga Sunday. I see I'm the only one that got the memo. This is very, very embarrassing. So I hate it when that happens. Hey, today you're going to see just another example of why we are passionate about the Bible today as we get to not just hear and study a passage of the Bible, but experience it together. To do that, I want to get a little set up to it. And it has been an exciting week. In fact, the, the way in which we've been able to help and minister and be with people this week. You know, we've had, we had funeral uh, here um, on Saturday and you just got a chance to love on people. Um, our hallways have been filled with stuff this week. Um, we have got so much construction going on. It's been very, very exciting. In fact, our, our app is going to be put in place here in the fall. So we've had lots and lots of meetings on that. We're hoping there's going to you know, come a day very soon here in the fall that we're going to see services uh, where you love the worship, where you got a chance to experience a message. You'll get a chance to look at that, watch the video, maybe send a copy of a message you heard or maybe a drama that you experienced to a friend and say, wow. This was really impactful to me, and maybe it will be for you as well. We've got a team here from Nashville who's been installing all the video equipment, tearing into pillars and putting in wires. All of our halls have been filled with like 600 boxes all week because they've been running all the fiber optic lines. So thank you again for all of you who've given to be part of this project. We are right on the cusp of being able to put these tools of video production uh, and live streaming and all those pieces in place. So thank you for your giving, and it's definitely been an exciting week for that. If you haven't given yet, just know as soon as this project's over, we're going to start the construction of the room to add additional equipping services or other services here. And so if you feel like, hey, I wasn't part of that, I'd love to be part of it, uh, we're trying to make some decisions about the final finishing. So there's still some opportunities to be part of the giving for that. And again, thank you so much. It's been a very, very exciting week uh, and summer. Well, today we're going to hear uh, the trial of Jesus Christ through the eyes of Pontius Pilate. And the reason I want you to hear it from Pilate is because there's a couple of key verses I want us to look at. One of the key verses in Luke 23 is that Pilate speaking, Pilate says, Having examined him in your presence, I, Pilate, have found no fault in this man concerning the things accused of him. And in the book of Mark it says that Jesus' silence when being accused is so striking that Pilate marveled. And it doesn't really strike us, what's the big deal? Because most of us don't know anything about Pilate except as a footnote in Jesus' story. But if you look at history, there's a historian by the name of Josephus Flavius who recorded much of the dynasty and legacy of Pontius Pilate. So when the reader in that first century read that Pontius Pilate marveled at Jesus, that grabbed their attention. When they read that Pontius Pilate found him innocent, that grabbed their attention. So today we're going to dive back into history, discover who Pontius Pilate was and why it was such a big deal that he marveled at Jesus in hopes that you and I can marvel at him as well. So join me as we go back to the first century. My name is Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. I am a military man, known more for my military conquest than my diplomacy. My Caesar and my god, Tiberius, asked me to become governor of Judea. Judea was a land filled with Hebrews, Jews, I knew little of them, had no contact with them. 
They were religious people with strange religious beliefs. They worshipped one God, unlike us Romans, who worship many gods. We Romans are pious, and we are callous. We win because we worship, and we worship because we win. When we come into enemy territory, we defeat their gods. And seeing their gods defeated, nations surrender to our gods who bring us victory. It was 100 years ago that General Pompey overtook Judea. And he was struck. Struck as he came and surrounded the walls of Jerusalem. That these people were so courageous. And no one had seen the god of the Hebrews. General Pompey longed to see a statue, an image of this mysterious God. As he made his way to the walls, he noted that the Hebrews were courageous. They fought with honor. When they seized the walls, they regrouped and they defended their temple. When General Pompey came upon the temple, he was struck that these Hebrews continued their daily ritualistic worship of their God while in battle with him. He was intrigued. When they pushed through the temple doors, he longed to see their God. He came into their temple and he found nothing. A wash basin, an altar. Where was this mysterious God of the Hebrews? Then another building. He made his way past the curtain. Now he would see their God. Again, nothing. A candlestick. A table with bread and another curtain. He pulled back that curtain. He saw nothing. Apparently there had once been a golden box filled with rocks prior to the Babylonian exile. But nothing. These Hebrews worship an invisible God. How do you defeat a people who worship an invisible God? How does an invisible God inspire such courage and strength. General Pompey was so impressed, he cleansed the temple of the, the Roman abomination, and he reinstated their worship, and he headed back to Rome in triumph. Yes, these Hebrews, strange religious practices. Oh, and they're lazy people. Every seven days they must rest to think about the invisible God. They mutilate the privates of all their males, children in, in signs of a covenant to their God. They don't eat meat from a pig. No bacon. No bacon. But mostly these Jews do not know their place. Which is why Caesar Tiberius asked me to put them back in line. I set up my office on the coast at Caesarea Maritime. It was here at Caesarea Maritime that I built an altar in worship to Caesar. The inscription still bears even today in this location. I made my first traveling to Jerusalem on Passover. It was always at Passover these Hebrews celebrated that their God had defeated foreign occupiers like the Egyptians. We Romans 
are not Egyptians. But it's always at Passover that they were hungry for revolt, hungry for rebellion. I would remind them a new governor and prefect was in town. I brought a whole legion of new soldiers. We brought with us banners of the worship of Caesar. Our gods had defeated their gods. We brought statues of worship of Tiberius. When we arrived in Jerusalem, we were met with protests. I was there to quench the rebellion. Instead, we were inflaming it. I had the protesters beaten. And every hour, the crowds grew, the protests increased. I called a hundred of the leaders before me. Share your grievances with Rome. For over an hour, they spoke about how we had broken two of their, their, their golden box commandments to have no other gods before their God and to not have graven images with our statues of Caesar. After over an hour, I was, I was done. Swords, soldiers, we are Rome. We are the conquerors. You are the conquered. We are the dominant. You are the subordinate. We are in triumph. You are enslaved. You will quench these protests. Disperse your crowds. With one sword on each one of the necks, I told them, your heads will roll before me right here and right now. If you do not submit. And with that, as if these hundred leaders had been trained as a Roman unit, they moved as one. They fell to the knees as one. They leaned into the blade, looked up into the heavens and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We shall love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. I had underestimated the dedication of these Hebrews to their invisible God. They were willing to give their life to worship Him alone. Perhaps the strategy of brute strength was not the way to govern Judea. I would need to pick my battles, perhaps engage in some diplomacy. But I could not compromise on the, the worship of Caesar. Perhaps I could turn these hundred leaders into aristocrats to keep the people in line. In the spirit of General Pompey, who allowed you to worship, Rome will allow you to worship your defeated, inferior, invisible God if you will keep your people in line. Rome will give you a crumb of power to keep the people in line, but this sliver of mercy from Rome will not be repeated. And these leaders, these Sadducees and Pharisees and chief priests dispersed the protests and we governed and quenched the rebellion. 
But this was a mere sliver of mercy from Rome. The iron fist was ready to pounce. The teeth of the Roman beast would come upon them if they rebelled again. A few years later, we had brought the gospel of divine Augustus here to Jerusalem with the Roma Paxa, the roads. I was to build an aqueduct. And these Hebrews refused additional taxes for their own clean water. I called a cohort of soldiers. I knew they kept silver and gold in their temple treasury. We would take it from them. I sent the cohort up to the temple. And there to, to defend their silver and gold were a group of Galileans. Galilean rebels, always from Galilee. Thought they could take on my centurion. Slaughtered them at the temple gates. Several backed into the temple. My soldiers came up, chased these Galileans up to the top of the altar where they slaughtered the Galileans, mingling their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. And we took the silver and gold and we built the aqueduct. And the gospel of good news of Rome had come to Jerusalem. Rome has a long history of dealing with Galilean rebels, generals, and would-be messiahs. Our long history is these Hebrews do not know their place, and these Hebrews have rebels always from Galilee, otherwise known as Gamla. It was ten years after the ascension of divine Augustus, which you may refer to as 8 AD, that Judas of Galilee, Judas of Gamla, led a rebellion against Rome. He told the Hebrews not to engage in the census, not to pay their taxes. We had him slaughtered. It was in 67 AD, just prior to our destruction of the temple, that right here in Galilee, behind those walls, General Josephus led a rebellion with the Hebrew troops. It was there that General Vespasian had them surrounded and in siege. One more day, he would burst through those walls and capture all of the Hebrews in Galilee. But that evening, General Josephus engaged in a murder-suicide pact with all of his men. Better, better to kill your brother than to be tortured by the Romans. They killed each other throughout the night, leaving only two, General Josephus. And his right-hand man. And then this coward had a change of heart. Rather than dying of honor. He crawled into a foxhole. Covered himself with the dead bodies of all of his men. General Vespasian broke through those walls in Galilee. Examined each one of the bodies. And found General Josephus hiding like a coward in a foxhole. As he pulled him out to torture him, Josephus turned to Vespasian and said that he was a seer, a seer of his invisible God. And his invisible God had, had, had prophesied that General Vespasian would be the next emperor of Rome. Now this got Vespasian's attention. The next emperor of Rome. Rather than killing Josephus, he imprisoned him. And several years later, Vespasian did become the next emperor of Rome. 
He released Josephus, renamed him Josephus Flavius, the great Roman historian who recorded much of my legacy and much of my dynasty. Josephus Flavius, the Roman historian, the Jewish general, but to me he'll always be a Galilean rebel. It was one Passover I'd entered the Praetorium. It was my first encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. The multitude came before me, making accusations against him. This man perverts our nation. He forbids us to pay taxes to Rome. He set himself up as a Messiah, a king. Is this true? Are you king of the Jews? It is, as you have said. I watched as they continued to vehemently accuse him of many things. And this prisoner remained silent. Will you not answer the testimony against you? Still silent. He was unaffected, unintimidated by these men and the, these aristocrats with the crumb of power. He had courage, honor. Most men came into these halls of power and they cowered, begged for their life, were forced, almost felt forced to answer the, the, the accusations, whether true or false, but not this man. And I marveled. Clearly this was a religious squabble, not worthy of my time. I see nothing worthy of death in this man, and I will release him. We have a law, and our law says that any man is worthy of death who calls himself the Son of God. The Son of God. This would complicate things. Son of God can only be used of Caesar Tiberius, the son of divine Augustus. It was a punishable offense. The son of God was also used of the great prophecy of Zeus. Zeus had become infatuated with Theta, but he did not pursue her. But there was a prophecy that the son of Theta would overthrow and destroy her father or his father. This prophecy put fear even into the face of Zeus. He would not impregnate Theta lest the son overpower the father. Zeus had also been the fulfillment of a prophecy for he had overthrown his father, the Titan Kronos. Could I be in the presence of the prophecy of Zeus? Zeus told Theta he would defend the Trojans in the war, so he sent a false dream to their enemies. It was then I received a note from my wife. Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I suffered greatly in a dream last night concerning him. A dream about this man? Was this a religious squabble? The prophecy of Zeus? 
Was this dream a warning or a false omen? There was no triumph in any of the options. Where are you from? You will now remain silent before me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you or I can have you crucified? You have no power over me except that which was given to you by my father. And these who've turned me over to you, they bear the greater sin. This man spoke with authority, spoke more like a general than a prisoner. This man had honor. He spoke as if he knew the gods themselves. No, there was no triumph. I would wash my hands of it all. I will release him. To which one of these chief priests said, If you release him, you're no friend of Caesar. He stirs up trouble all throughout the land, even to his hometown of Galilee. Galilee. Another would-be Messiah from Galilee. Another rebel from Galilee I should have known. Jesus of Galilee. Galilee. Galilee is Herod Antipas' jurisdiction. I will hand this problem over to him. Herod Antipas' head is so big, it does not fit into his helmet. His ego is only overshadowed by his incompetence. He started chaos in this region years ago by marrying his brother's wife, who was also his niece, if I recall. He was confronted by one Hebrew prophet, John the Baptizer, and Herod Antipas had him beheaded. And this Hebrew prophet turns out to be the cousin of one Jesus of Galilee. And Herod longed to meet Jesus of Nazareth when he came into his court that day. Jesus of Nazareth in my court. Jesus, come in, come in, come in. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the man who's, who's, who's convinced the whole countryside he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Come in, Jesus. Tell us the tools of the trade. Jesus of Nazareth in my court. Let's have this man do a trick. Uh, someone get this man a glass of water. Jesus, Jesus, turn it into wine. We hear you make the best kind of wine. I think he's ignoring me. Jesus of Nazareth giving Herod Antipas the silent treatment. Well, how about some fish? Give him some fish and bread. Can, can, can you feed all of us in the court with some fish and bread, Jesus? He's still silent. He's ignoring me. It's then that the religious leaders began to accuse him of many things. Clearly, he was innocent. They're always scraping for a little more power. But to be silent before me? No one is silent before me. Let's see if you can remain silent 
Jesus, if you will not perform on the stage in my courtroom, we shall turn my stage into a circus maximus. Men of war, get that man a robe. Men of war, put a bag over his head. Am I right? Put a bag over his head. Let's see what kind of a prophet he is. Men of war, take your turn. Oh, that's got to hurt. Oh, who hit you that time, Jesus? <laughs> hit him one more time. Oh, he's going to remember that one. Apparently, Pilate and I have something in common. Jesus, the play toy. Probably innocent, but silent. But he makes a heck of a punching bag, am I right? <laughs> Send him back to Pilate with my regards. King Herod returned him to me, beaten, bloodied, but he said he was innocent of the charges. I stood before the religious leaders. Herod and I have found nothing worthy of death in this man. We will release him. And again, here at Passover, they promised revolt, vehemently disagreeing with me. But this time I would turn the crowds against them. These crowds had invited this Jesus just a few days earlier. Rather than fighting the aristocrats, I would have them fight their own people. I brought Jesus before them. And I found the worst murder I could find. Barabbas, the serial killer. I brought them before the people. As is our custom on Passover... I will release to you one prisoner. Barabbas, the serial murderer, or Jesus, the king of the Jews. Was there the crowd began to cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. I could see the religious leaders had scattered themselves through the crowd, passing out coinage. Been outwitted by these aristocrats again. They had turned the crowd against Jesus. I made one more attempt to release him. I had Jesus taken and scourged and scourged, skinned as he was whipped. As he returned to me, he was bloodied from head to toe, not one inch of his body unmarked. And again I marveled. Most men did not survive the scourging. So I brought him before the crowd. I've had him chastened and scourged. What now shall I do with Jesus of Galilee? And the crowd began to cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Why? What has he done? I find no fault in this man worthy of death. Crucify him! Crucify him! I wash my hands of it all. Centurion, take this man to Golgotha. But I would not be undermined by these aristocrats. No, no. Everyone would know this was their king of the Jews we were crucifying. Jesus of Nazareth, of Galilee, the King of 
the Jews. We would hang this above him. And all of Judea would know what happens to Galilean rebels who claim to be kings over Caesar. Rome punishes its enemies. And I marveled at his honor. I marveled at his courage. I marveled at his authority. And I marveled that his own followers didn't marvel at him. His own disciples abandoned him. His own people scurried away as cowards. And yet one of my centurions watched him die. And even my centurion marveled at him. This centurion had seen 10,000 men die in battle and crucifixion. And he told me he had never seen a man, a prisoner, die on the cross as this man did. The centurion noted that he pushed up on that nail and cried out in a loud voice as if a commanding general on that cross. He said, It is finished! Oh, this king died with honor. So much so that even my centurion dared to whisper those those sacred words. Truly this was the Son of God. But this was no Roman king. I was on that cross. He pushed up on that nail one more time and mumbled something to us Romans. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's amazing his own followers don't marvel at this king when even the Romans marveled at aspects of this king. But now he's been crucified. And this is the last we shall ever see or hear of Jesus of Galilee. All right. Can we thank Chad so much for just an awesome performance? And thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, if you are new to us here at Horizon, we would love to meet you and get to know you a little bit more. Feel free to stop by the hearth room. It's the third door on your left as you make your way out of here today. And also, if you came prepared to give, you can do so as you leave as well. Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.